0: I mean, I've spoken to a number of executives who said they're not coming to our seminar to create, quote, joy in work or intrinsic motivation. They're there to save money, make money. Oftentimes, that's the draw that brings them. Other things that oftentimes bring them them into it is if they're in a crisis and what they're doing right now isn't working, so they're like the Japanese after World War II, they're willing to try something very different. It's not until they get into it, like we talked about earlier, that first day, there's that challenge because you're challenging the way they got there. That leader oftentimes, I mean, almost always, got to the point of being a leader by doing things the way they do things. And the last thing that they want to hear is we're asking you to change the way you did something or the way you're doing it and the way you got to be successful. Talk about fear and talk about That's something that's really challenging to leadership and management. Now there are enlightened people out there that are willing to try something very different all the time, but until they actually read the book, go through this, they don't have that eye-opening experience.
1: Welcome to the award-winning Leadership in the Environment podcast. We guide you to living better by your values. We bring you relevant views on important topics without doom and gloom. We focus on awareness and action. It's about bringing fun, community, and connection to your everyday life. If you're new to the channel, please consider subscribing and turning on notifications. Let's do this. If you don't know Kevin Cahill's name or his grandfather, W. Edwards Deming, listen to the first few minutes. Well, you'll meet Kevin over the course of the episode. I'll describe W. Edwards Deming in the beginning of the conversation. He has become one of my greatest role models, he changed nations an emperor awarded him a medal. There's a prize named after him in Japan for having revolutionized Japan's industries. And he did it in a few years, as in less than five years, transformed a nation on a timescale that climate scientists say that we have, not that climate is our only problem. He shows what one person can do. His life is the opposite of what everyone who doesn't act justifies their inaction with, which is what one person does doesn't matter. He was one person and listen to the episode to hear all the things that he did that are available for us to do today, W. Edwards Deming saw and acted on systems, what many people talk about, but not many people get. This episode will illuminate them, that is, a systems perspective, and, I hope, give hope and direction for what we can do. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spoduck. I'm here with Kevin Kale. Kevin, how are you doing?
0: I'm well, thank you. Appreciate you having me.
1: Glad to have you. And you are the grandson of W. Edwards Deming, who is what I talk a lot about role models. And he's a big role model for me. He was for a little bit, then he wasn't. And then recently he's become really big for me. And if it's okay with you, I'm going to tell you my experience with him, my the ins and outs and why he's suddenly so big for me. And then I'd love to hear from you. Well, we talked about it last time. I'd love to hear from you more. I mean, you, you know his history and more than I do. I'd love to hear it. I first heard his name in business school, and it would have been either in statistics class or operations class. And my my professor was David Duran, who's the son of Duran Duran. And so I think he, he must have known him. And part of the appeal was, I knew the guy had a PhD in physics, and I have a PhD in physics. And I thought, oh, I love people with PhDs in physics who go out and like take over industries and like not take over in the sense of like uh, leverage buyouts, but transform industries or transform cultures. And my understanding was that he, in his... After his degree, he went out and started working with a census, the U.S. census in the 30s. And I believe at the time they thought the best way to get the best results was to get every single, count every single house if possible. And he learned from his mentor, Shuhart, and I guess they must have developed statistical sampling methods that showed that you could do less work and get lower uncertainty, that is to say more, more accuracy, and that they did that. It's a sort of like on-time and under-budget thing that everyone dreams of. Sure. World War II breaks out. All these factories have to transition from making cars and sewing machines to making planes and tanks. And he uses similar techniques to transform what they used to think. If you want higher quality, well, you just got to make more things and throw away more of the lower quality things. And so it's, they would say higher quality is intention with lower costs and higher production. He showed that it was the opposite. And my understanding, like I always knew that cracking Enigma was a big thing that helped win World War II. And now I understand that our factory production was another big thing that helped win World War II. It wasn't on the front lines, but it certainly helps to have more tanks, and more planes that are better built and don't break down. Correct. World War II ends. And I think he had a connection with, something about the army gets him to Japan, where Japan is industry and everything's devastated having they lost the war. And I believe the world knows them for low quality high, low-cost, low-quality junk. Correct. He comes in and uses the same techniques. Oh, I think American factories went back to normal. They went back to before after the war ended and somehow dropped what they had learned from him. But Japan says, let's go for it. And they start really adopting his systems. And I don't think it's just him, but it, he played, it seems like a major role. And he says to them, if you do this, it looks like you guys are really getting into this. If you do this within five years, Japan is going to, Dominate the world. I don't think dominate like take over, but dominate in certain terms of will serve the world. And my understanding is that four years later, most countries or many Western countries had put up protectionist tariffs, and Japan became known as high quality, low cost. Yes. Unexpected.
0: Very much so.
1: Oh, I've gone on too long. Okay, so then then oh. in, then the U.S. sees this happening, and you know Toyota becomes the largest car company in the world. Decades and decades later, GM and Chrysler declare bankruptcy. This is much later, but you know the shift is like definitely is is palpable. America's suffering or economically is going down. They do the show in 1980 on NBC, If Japan Can, Why Can't We? Featuring all of the results that were brought about by your grandfather. The phone starts ringing before the show ends. I think you were there in the house. I was there. Yes. And all these companies say, we need you. We want you to help us. And among these companies is Ford. And boom, Ford Taurus appears number one selling car in America, and he does it again. So people now say, what can one person do? People say the change is so great, it's not possible. And I think here's a guy, one guy, he does it with the census, kind of small scale, with the factories in World War II, bigger scale, with all of Japan, that's a whole nation, with zero going for it. I mean, it's got a culture, but it's also got ruin. And then he does it again back in the States. And I'm thinking, we need more Deming. (laughs) and also it gives me great hope especially me personally as a phd in physics thinking oh i could take what he's done and with suitable change and application bring it here all right sorry to go on so long
0: no that's great
1: you did a really nice job with that thank you i've been i mean i've been brushing up (laughs) how does that sound from your perspective and and what what was like from the inside and what are some other things that i might have missed And and who are you?
0: (laughs) I mean, you hit on some really interesting points. I think one of the frustrations that my grandfather had was the progress, tremendous, tens of thousands of engineers went through the courses that they taught during World War II. And the belief was that coming out of the war, that this was an opportunity for us to build on the concept of higher quality and lower cost. And as he famously said in one interview... everything went up in smoke, and it just disappeared. This was before he was asked to go in, as he was being asked to go into Japan. And it was, I get a lot of people asking, why did that happen? And it seems that the answer was, as we started, as World War II ended, the U.S. was really the only major economic power that was still left that could provide the goods and services to the rest of the world. Quality didn't matter it was quantity you could make anything and you would make money so their focus wasn't on high quality low cost their focus was on making more money selling as many goods and services as they possibly could and you had you had a, a never ending market for that so they didn't it didn't matter they didn't have to focus on it any longer yet the japanese realized that they had significant constraints first of all as you've mentioned The war was over. Their industrial base had been completely devastated. They have very few natural resources. So they have to think systemically from a completely different perspective. How can we rise to become an economic power? How can we make a difference and do it? And he said, if you follow my ideas, like you had mentioned, you'll have the world screaming for protection, tariff protection from your goods and services within five years, And they were able to accomplish it in four years by focusing not what the U.S. was doing, because the U.S., this pen I hold in my hand, the U.S. concept was, well, let's make 100 of these and 90 of them are high quality and 10 are low quality. We'll sell the, the 90 high quality one. We have a high quality pen. But what they were missing was the fact that they still had the cost and the waste and the environmental impact of creating 10 that either had to be brought back and reworked or discarded. And that's an additional cost. Where the Japanese, working with my grandfather and others, said, let's build the quality into it so that instead of 90 high-quality pens, we have 100 high-quality pens. And we're not, the waste goes down, the quality goes up, And the productivity goes up. Because before, the concept was, if you increased your quality, your productivity went down. Or if you increased your productivity, your cost went up. So everything changed when he started to do that. So that was really, for him, very powerful that they were willing to listen. The other thing that was very interesting was when he was first invited in, he said, He realized that what he had done in World War II is he had worked with the engineers. He had worked with middle level, sure, some upper level management, but not exclusively. And he said to the Japanese, I will do this. I will work with you, but you have to have the leadership there. And they have to attend all my workshops, seminars, other events. They have to be there because I do not want to go through what I went through before in the United States where it gets discarded. And you have to have that constancy of purpose. You have to be willing to continue on once the crisis subsides. You have to keep following it. Because typically, and you see it, I think in one of your TED Talks, you mentioned a hurricane or a natural disaster. And you'll see it in those natural disasters, how the entire community will come together in a natural disaster. It doesn't matter about anything. It doesn't matter how old you are, what your race is, what your economic um, disposition is, we all come together, think together, learn together, act together in that crisis. But once it's over, we go back to the way we were. And he said to the Japanese, you cannot do that. You have to promise me. And they promised him and they've kept going. That was huge for him.
1: Did they test him? Did they believe him? How do, I mean, I guess he could point to the results during the war, but that doesn't mean, I mean, that's that's a lot to ask for them unless he had something Why would they, I mean, why put so much faith in one guy? Or was it not faith, but did he prove something out to them?
0: Well, they knew of him. They knew of his work during World War II. And I believe you and I talked about in our last conversation, one of the interesting things is when people, in this case, countries or organizations are in a crisis, they're willing to do things differently. Look at things that they might not have considered. And my grandfather was already there helping out a few years, a little while before that he was asked to come in, um, helping with their census. So they knew he had some background in this. They knew he had some success in this. And what I believe happened, and from what I've heard anecdotally, is that their only other option was to continue, like you had mentioned before, with manufacturing in a a manner that Japanese products were considered cheap and low quality, and they saw this as an opportunity to change things, and they invited him to come in, and then they must have clearly, they obviously did, liked what he had to say to them, and he was very confident that we could change this around very, very quickly, and so they took a leap of faith, frankly.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I mean, to see videos of him, he doesn't look like the most charismatic person. He's, he's definitely got a certain style to him that's like, um ugh. Uh, What's his name? The NASA engineer who said, he didn't say failure is not an option, but he's credited with that. In the movie Apollo 13. Is it Von Braun? No. um, It might come to me. I forget. uh, Frank, Frank.
0: No, Frank Borman, was it?
1: Anyway, in the movie Apollo 13, there's a scene that is a credit to him where they're saying like, this is going bad, this is going wrong. And someone says, it's like the, the, the mission engineer, the top guy is talking to the, the guy who's gonna talk to the press and the guy talking to the press, like, what am I supposed to say? This has gone wrong, that's gone wrong, and the other guy goes, I I know this could be the worst disaster in NASA's history. And uh, this guy that I'm talking about, the character kind of representing him turns around and says, with all due respect, sir, I believe this will be our finest hour.
0: I remember that. I can't remember who it was, but that's, yeah.
1: And and your father kind of reminds me of him. It's like this 50s, 60s engineer type And he, he, I mean, he was really down to business. He, He doesn't seem very, correct me if I'm wrong, he's not charming, but he's not, um, he's not a jerk. He's just very matter of fact.
0: Yeah. But he was pretty tough. I, one of the seminars I was at, he was pretty tough on some executive CEOs that would get up. There were 800 people and they would ask a question and, uh, he was thinking, well, I just explained that. We just went over that. And here's another executive. And I remember one time him saying, next question. And I was like, no, no, you haven't an answered mine. <laughs> he was ready to move on to somebody who would ask a better question. And and I think he was one of the things that I've noticed that's always been a struggle for me personally is how well he would take that Socratic approach and ask questions and pull out things from people. And while he didn't have that charisma of, you know, I'm trying to think, you know, like the Tony Robbins who get up there and captivate people mm-hmm. and they're just staring at him. It was really amazing to go to and see videos and also experience where you would have six, 800 people in a room who he was talking to and how he could captivate them, even though he would speak very slowly, very matter-of-factly, but he would get it across and he'd have that humor in there at times that really endeared him to people too.
1: I think that there's something about sticking with the raw data, sticking with what the experience shows that really is compelling beyond... Right, Charisma is great. I hope I have some. But the having data to back up, having results, having experience, it seems to really rule the day, and especially with science. if I mean, with something, the environment, with sustainability, it's it doesn't matter what you think. Nature responds not to what you think, but how you behave. And exactly. that's all more role I'm just looking for more role model, more behavior to model off of.
0: Well, and I think as you continue to read his book, The New Economics, you're going to see some sections in there. As a matter of fact, I can send you a sheet, which I think you'll find interesting, where a lot of people ask, you know, help me understand what does AIM mean? You know, what is our aim? And you'll see in there that when he talks about AIM, That environment does factor in there. That is a consideration. The aim is not about to make money. You know, it's it's something very, very different. And he, he understands the environment is a system, right, Joshua? I mean, the environment is a system. We have to have an aim in terms of how we're going to address that system. And that aim must be clear to everyone who's in that system. And when that aim's not clear, and we're not working towards that aim. We're going to have, whether it's corporations or individuals or people who are going to be working towards different aims, and there's going to be conflict within there. And that aim must include plans for the future. You know, what do we want, whether it's the organization, the environment, the country, you know, what, what do we want that to actually look like?
1: Yeah, he actually got into that in, in like the first couple of pages of the book. He's talking yeah. about if you use up your resources, you got, although he also, as you pointed out, Japan didn't have didn't have those things. It's really the culture, the people, what we do. He talked about America at the time, possibly the biggest waste of resources in the world, or the most. How did he? Everyone should read the book <laughs> and, yeah. and read the beginning. And it's so I don't uh, have to quote it. And I want to ask in a second about leadership and what one person can do. But there's one other thing that we've we haven't talked about that, as you start talking about it, it reminded me that for him, the dignity of the worker is tremendous. Like Everyone wants to do a great job. Everyone wants to love what they do. And if you blame the workers, like it's not the workers who decide what the factory should do. They want to do a good job. And he puts a lot of responsibility on management. Management decides what you build. If the factories don't go out of business, it's rare that a factory goes out of business because the workers don't want to do a good job. It's the product got superseded by another product. That's not the workers. But it seems like he, he really wants to give people... He, he recognizes people want to do a good job. People want to do they want to do the right thing. And so many systems of incentives, there's this list of like, of what, of, I forget, like reasons people give for things going bad. And you'd look at them and say, those all make sense. Except after you read his stuff, it all, you're like, oh, of course, (laughs) if you, if you, you know, it's merit-based stuff and and it's, you're pitting people against each other and then they're going to compete and then they're going to hide information. They're going to not work together well. They're not going to tell how to improve things and then you're not you're going to get inefficiencies
0: very true i mean I, I think you know when he started looking at the numbers and started looking at his control charts working with walter shuhart and they started to understand the concept and as you get further into the book and you especially read about the red beet experiment which is known worldwide is that there's common special causes and that common cause if you treat it as a special cause that you're going to have an impact. So you're looking at a data point here and a data point here. If it's a common cause system, all of those points and performance within there are as good as that system and the design of that system will be able to produce. And so the fact that we look at an individual and I think one of the things, and I may have it off by a percentage or so, he said is 94% of the potential and capability of any organization is in the design of the system. So, what we end up doing is we end up looking when we don't get the performance we want, we look at the individual as not being able to perform without seeing that it's really the design of the system that is the issue. Do, how often do we give a performance appraisal on the system instead, we think well we just we just need higher achievers. We need the top people to bring in. And then you find out, well, even they're going to struggle in it because the system is the constraint for the ability to produce. And then the worker knows that and they become frustrated. And all of a sudden that intrinsic joy, that that desire to do a good job is just driven away because they're left with, it's not my fault. I'm doing the best I can within the constraints of that system. And so a lot of times you'll get workers, and I've heard management and executives say, well, that guy's been around, that gal's been around 10 years, and you can tell they're just grinding it out. Now, they don't care about us. They just want to get to the end and get their pension or whatever. Well, it's we've beaten them down. Management, the leadership, and the design of that system, it's no longer intrinsic joy. They don't have joy in work. And I mean, think about it. You come home from a day where you've just been beaten up all day and you come home to your family, how are you going to interact with your family? Is it good? Maybe it's joyful. Maybe you're angry. Who knows? It can lead to something else that has a greater impact on your kids or your spouse or your community out there. And I mean, so it goes beyond just what's happening at work. It's, it's where does that take you, not having that joy in work? And you have that joy in work, and you realize, I have a say. I have, you know, an ability to have an impact if somebody asks me on the design of the system or at least give my feedback. And fortunately, we have management and leadership who are looking at constantly improving it. It makes a huge difference. I mean, it leads to that joy in work and and ultimately joy in life, which is pretty powerful.
1: It's funny how people, to me, science and math, people look at it as like science and math. They look at it like this number stuff, non-emotional. My take on it is that you learn that stuff not in order to focus on that. You got to know the numbers because that's input to decisions. That's input to how you live your life. If you don't understand that, you are you don't know the playing field. But knowing the playing field, that enables you to, now you make the decisions in life. Like, I mean, he, I think he said, like the most important things are mostly not measurable, but you can't get to those if you're confused by the stuff that is measurable. And what it leads to is is it's, I feel like the people who really get the stuff most operations, statistics, not just statistics in general, but business. It's really about joy and dignity and and flourishing and family and community. It's not, yeah, you got to know the numbers, but that's not the point.
0: And the numbers, you're right. The numbers are important. I mean, I think one of the things that he said famously was the temperature in the room, it tells you, the, the, the gauge in the room tells you the temperature, but it doesn't tell you what to do. It just it, it's an indicator. And people ask me, they say, well, the numbers are important. The spreadsheets are important. They're, they are to a degree. It also depends on how you look at them. But I mean, you see it in businesses all the time. And one of the examples I, I give from time to time is, uh, is an example that involved my wife, where she went into this retail store to purchase um, a dress for a wedding that she was attending. And you know, she had a pretty good idea on what the dress was she wanted to wear. So she goes in there, and the salesperson was really smooth and said, ended up upselling her to a different dress and then saying, working with her on, well, you really need these shoes, you really need this. And and she was feeling a little bit like she was being taken, but she ended up going along with it. And as she's leaving, she has her her all of her clothing and she's wandering around the store and she she kind of comes back into that area and she sees the salespeople high-fiving themselves because the woman or the salesperson who who was selling it to her had hit her goal for the month. And it was right near the end of the month. They had they had hit their goal by by upselling my wife and getting some more things and they were all proud that they had had achieved their goal or their incentive or whatever it was. Okay. This is where the, the numbers come into play. So what was the impact of my wife talking to other friends who might have said, you know, that, what was that store like? What was that one worth going to? The impact of a satisfied customer versus a dissatisfied customer versus a delighted customer. A satisfied customer, you almost never tell anybody about what you, what you experienced. A dissatisfied customer, you're going to tell a lot of people. That's the unknown and unknowable. So what that store didn't know was the multiplying effect of my wife telling somebody who told somebody who told somebody. And I remember telling my wife, I said, you watch. A couple of years, they'll be out of business. Sure enough, they were out of business. Next thing you know, a year later, they're, all they have are sales all the time because they can't get people in. And they kept giving higher and higher incentives. So people learn from this. And the, the owner of the store, they can't measure that. They can't measure that my wife said something to somebody who said some, something to somebody else and nobody that she knew in her orbit went into it. And I can tell you, if that had happened to my wife, I guarantee you it happened to other people too.
1: Yeah, it's funny because you, you remind me of another instance that went the opposite way for me. Well, this is, I was once waiting for a friend and there was a, a CD store, this is a long time ago. And I'm just browsing and the guy comes over and says, what kind of music do you like? And he's asking me and I'm talking to him and he goes, you know, I think you might like this CD here. And it was an import of these two DJs that I really liked. And it was like $20 when CDs were normally $10. And I was like, I don't know. And he's like, well, based on... He had listened to me. It was one of my favorite DVD or CDs. It really... I loved it because I couldn't have gotten it otherwise. It had these subtle differences from anything that would have come in America. And it was... I don't think he had a sales quota. I think he really knew my music. And like, I don't know where it came from, but he knew something that he, he had something that I really liked. And I told people to go to the store. Meanwhile, there's like United Breaks Guitars. I I'm sure you've seen that video of the guy whose guitar broke and, and then they wouldn't do right by him. And so he yeah. made a song that got, home, I don't know how many views. And I certainly remember United Breaks Guitars.
0: There's a difference, uh, to me, there's a difference there. I mean, that person was listening to you. Now, if my wife hadn't gone back and heard that, she might have come away thinking, "Oh, the salesperson really cared about me," but you know, eventually, if you're if you're really focused, is all your focus on is hitting that incentive. Yes, it, and people say to us all the all the time, "Well, incentives work; they do." But what's the long term impact? I mean, I can give you an incentive to get from point A to point B as fast as you can. And in your, in your case, you can get on an airplane and get there really fast, right?
1: Well, I might not, but others, yeah.
0: (laughs) But you don't want to get on an airplane and get there really fast. You want to get on a train or drive or something like that. Okay. But I can give you, if I gave you enough of incentive, you'd go ahead. You might not, but a lot of people might break that vow and get on that airplane because you gave them an incentive. Then there's an impact for that. You know, the same thing is, you know, if I, if I tell a driver to get from point A to point B, and they know it takes them eight to 12 minutes to get from point A to point B, and I say, can you do it in six? And they're like, not really, not safely. And if I give them an incentive, which is what we're doing in our businesses, they'll do it. They'll get there. And the impact on the environment, on the community, on possibly on them, if they get in an accident or scare somebody or cause a heart attack or hurt themselves or kill themselves. I mean, you know, that's a kind of a dramatic example, but it's a realistic one. I mean, in business what we're doing is we're hitting those incentives whether the system we have designed is capable of hitting those incentives or not. The better thing is the design of the system enables me to do this. That's what I am productive and able to do. Let's Redesign that system if we don't like what we see or what the output is, and redesign it and come up with another theory on how we can improve it instead of giving somebody an incentive or a bonus or a merit pay or something like that.
1: I think it's pretty safe to say that we have an economic system. Economic is not the right word because it's more than economic, but the American system, a global system, is not conducive toward maintaining Earth's ability to sustain life in human society. And people feel beaten down. And little incentives aren't as effective as changing the system. There are many ways to change systems. I'm trying to work on the goals and the values driving the system. This is from reading Donella Meadows and other system stuff. And yeah, to know the science behind it is important, but that's not the point. That's, that's like knowing the statistics. The next stage is to work with what people want, what people care about, so that they love what they're doing instead of feel like, oh, fine, I'll do the straw thing but they don't see the results. They just like, okay, I'll I'll do the straw thing for a bit. And then, well, that doesn't seem to have made a difference. I guess what I do doesn't matter. They've learned not to, they've learned that what they do doesn't matter, but your grandfather didn't learn that (laughs) and it didn't happen. And so I'd like to, what is this difference between, I don't know what the right word is, paradox or contrast or distinction between one person changing the behavior divided by 7.8 billion is it rounds off to zero. And yet, your grandfather stated clearly many times, if I read him right, that systemic change requires individual change, and it begins with the individual changing. I wonder if you can, even for me, I believe it, and I have a, it rings true to my gut, but it's hard for me to put that in words to others. I wonder if you've heard him talk about that, or if you have experience explaining that, or do I misunderstand it?
0: No, no. What he said was, transformation begins with the individual, Okay. And that the individual has to have an understanding of what he says, the elements of his philosophy to begin that transformation. And because a lot of times what we'll see is, I mean, you'll see a book like Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, okay? And you go out and try to emulate those seven, seven things. Well, it may be that you haven't transformed as an individual. What you're trying to do is put those on top of who you already are. And in his mind, you have to have an understanding of this in a greater sense, because it's it's not just about you at work. It's about you in life, in your community, in your family, in your other, uh, your friends, you know, and how you act and interact with them. So in his mind, the transformation begins with the individual, and then it starts to spread and, and hopefully you get that critical mass, especially within an organization. But I think one of the things I mentioned to you last time you and I spoke, how powerful it was to him. And you'll see it as you read through the book, some examples of people who came back to him and wrote him letters saying, I came out of your workshop, out of your seminar, and it saved my marriage. It helped me in my community. It made a difference for me. So in his mind, It was, it goes beyond just, this is a business problem that we have to solve. It's about the individual and their ability to have an impact on the greater community, environment, and world that they live in.
1: So I keep telling people, this change is not about, here's how I often put it. The the fact that you have one person is not going to be that great. The reason to do this, yes, you will affect others in the long term, but you're going to like your life more. And after the people who do it, after they do it, they get it, but before they do it, they don't get it. And oftentimes they'll push back more and be like, like I was talking to someone about not flying. And I was like, you know, you think flying, you, you associate flying with bringing you to your mom when you're far away. Yeah. But the reason you are far away in the first place is flying. You actually spend, I don't know, every individual's life is their unique life, but probably you spend less time with family because flying has moved you farther away from them. And if you really value family, like. Making these changes will probably lead you to like your life more. But this is—I'm going to say it to you more bluntly than I say it to others. A heroin user probably can't believe that a life—life life rewards from exercise and a healthy diet and working for a living—is going to be more rewarding for them in the long run than shooting up, because they see the withdrawal. They know the pain that's going to come, but they can't see past the withdrawal because that's what's really getting them. And people can see, if I don't fly, and right now my job requires me to fly, and my family's far away, I think they think, well, if flying means money and family, then not flying means no money, no family. That sounds terrible. Yeah. (laughs) And yet, you have to get through that to get to the other side. It's
0: Well, you bring up an interesting point, and I'll kind of go off point a touch, and you'll see where I'm going with this in a second. Go back to the heroin user for a second.
1: Uh Lovely place to be. So.
0: I don't know how my grandfather, I mean, what he would say with respect to that, except I do believe he would look at what are the systemic underlying issues, why that person ended up on heroin. What is it that we did? Because when that child, when that when that human who's who's hooked on heroin was born. They're probably, you know, now I, I can't say a hundred percent. There's gonna be people who have you know issues that they're gonna go on that anyway. Most of them, I guarantee you, when they're three, four, five, six, seven, eight years old, for the most part, as a younger child, they're not inclined probably to look at life or the or their family or their siblings or their parents, whomever, and say, oh. Johnny's going to be hooked on heroin here in 20 years. So I laugh at it, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. You know, but what is it that we did? What systems that did we build? Did we put that child in the school and they started falling behind because of the way our school system is built and the way we teach and that they started to get D's and F's and started to fall behind in school. And then we're told, oh wait, you're at the bottom of the class. You're not going to make anything of yourself in life. What is the impact on a child who's in second, third, fourth, fifth grade, whatever it is, of telling them that they are probably never going to make, you're not even going to get to high school. You might as well go out. Well, they start looking at, instead of the intrinsic joy of learning and the experience that you get from reading a phenomenal book because they haven't gotten to the point where they can read a book or experiencing whatever it might be, they're looking for other ways to start getting highs in their life. And they may start to, okay, I'm going to start doing dangerous things. I'm going to start throwing you know, stuff at the teacher. I'm going to start doing different things. I'm going to start skipping class. And man, I get adrenaline rush from that. Instead of the adrenaline rush from the joy in learning and the joy in what you experience in working together with your classmates. Instead, I'm pitted against every classmate because I'm trying to get a better grade than, than him or her. And all of a sudden that leads to that person. And now all of a sudden, the thing that my grandfather was always very much against, you're back to, you now have these pens. You've got 10 pens who are hooked on heroin. Well, we have to deal with that. There's a cost to society to deal with that. We have to now save that individual the best we can. And there is going to be a cost because most likely many of them are going to come back and get hooked again. And we're going to try again, try again, try again. The idea is, how do we, in the beginning, build that quality of life, that intrinsic joy in life and in work ultimately, so that we have out of a hundred children, most almost hundred are going to have joy in life and learning and, and going to be have a yearning to seek even more and new knowledge throughout their life and not become tied into drugs or other things like that? Sorry, I kind of get passionate about that. Well,
1: the, the system's perspective is—I mean, you were talking about one effect of—I think it was ranking, or maybe there were multiple effects. But I heard ranking is like one of the big ones. If you have a system that ranks people, by definition, some people are going to be ranked worst. That means they're going to feel like failure. Well, I, they might feel differently, but that means you're going to tell some of them, "Some you are the worst." Yes. And you're going to get psychological effects. So you're going to—it's going to affect them, their moods, their motivations, their out—their outcomes. And if you say. If you tell some people you're the worst, then you're
0: going to get some people who are the worst. That's not them. That's you. You're telling them they're the worst. Hey, self-fulfilling prophecy. I mean, you're worst. You're, you're never going to make it. You're not going to succeed. You're always at the bottom of the class. I mean, what do you expect them to try? I mean, are they really? Some of them will be able to dig themselves out. Some of but most of them won't. You've, you've told them that. I mean, I was one of five kids. My mother never put on the refrigerator, ranked and rated us on the refrigerator. <laughs> uh-huh. Yet we go to school and they're ranking and rating us, telling us, well, you're, you're because every child is precious and they have, they should have an opportunity to have, you know, to contribute to society and, and have a, a joyful life.
1: And it's easy to say, well, some people just don't have what it takes. But if your system has, everybody is basically comparable, if everyone can succeed, Let's just say you have a system where everyone can succeed, but there is some minor variation that could be just how they felt on the day of the test, or maybe someone's strong in one area that we test highly and not so strong in another area that we don't test and yet for someone else is the reverse. You might have a bunch of very capable people and you still separate them and you, you still are going to say some of you are the worst. Even if all of them would be perfectly capable of running the top corporations or governments. Exactly.
0: I mean, I still remember a good friend whose daughter was off to school, to middle school. And I'll tell you, weeks beforehand, we never we heard everything about it. She was so excited about what she was going to wear the first day. She was going to meet new friends. She was just incredibly excited. Goes off to middle school day one, comes back and is crying. What's the matter? The whole focus was they this was a high performing school in the state. And their focus was, we have to remain a high-performing school. All they were told about was how hard the tests were going to be. You're going to have to study for it. It was about how well you're going to do on the test. And I asked some questions. There was nothing about learning. And I don't blame the teachers. The teachers are in the system that we have designed. And the teachers are being told they have to do well on this test, this test, this test. And she was panicked before every test. And did not, I mean, she knew the material. And if you told her to make a volcano from scratch, I mean, she could do something that would blow me away. Yet, if you had a multiple choice on what volcanoes are about, she was gonna fail because she learned differently. And that was one of the things my, my grandfather really talked about was, you know, people learn differently, even in business, whether it's an organization or whether it's in school. And, you know, we're just not set up to teach differently than the curriculum. And it was just devastating to her that, that it was all just a focus on we had to do well on this test so the school would do well. So they might be at the top of the state and, and the prestige that came from that.
1: Now, I see a lot in environment and sustainability, people focusing a lot on the facts and the figures and the, the doom and the gloom. And they don't focus on the emotions and the joy but also, I don't want to say like it's positive versus negative. A lot of people misinterpret that. No, it's about, to me, it's leadership versus management. It's focusing on stories and role models and images and beliefs. You do have to get the numbers, but you can't lead with the numbers. I mean, management, leadership without management, I don't think works very well. But management without leadership, I think, doesn't work either. Not if you want, I mean, that'll, that'll get your bureaucracy to do its bureaucracy stuff. Yeah. The DMV, it's all management. And maybe it ought to be. System change is, you can't test your way through that.
0: And I don't know where you are in the book, but uh, I think it was chapter five in the New Economics where my grandfather talks about leadership. And what he says is the way he uses that term leadership, he says the job of the leader is to accomplish transformation in their organization and that they possess, the leader's the one that possesses that knowledge, that personality, and that persuasive power. And then he talks about how do we accomplish that transformation? I mean, you have that theory and he understands why that transformation will be, you know, bring about gains to the organization, to all the employees or team members that, you know, and to the customers. And then he has that feeling and that, you know, he's compelled to take people through and have them understanding and, and accomplish that transformation for both himself or herself and the organization. and. It's not just saying, oh, we're going to go ahead and transform the organization. Well, by what method are we going to do it? The leader has that plan, the steps. This is how we're going to do it. Here's what we're predicting as the, the results. And we're going to go ahead and, and put this plan into action. Then we're going to study it and we're going to react to it. And we're going to drive fear out by letting people understand that they're a part of the process and that there is no fear in predicting the wrong number that the organization is going to accomplish, a 10% decrease or a 10% increase. If we're off and it's only 8%, well, why? Let's learn from it. Instead of saying, Joshua, you told me you were going to hit 10%, you only hit eight. Okay, we need to get the next person in line. Well, let's figure out why. What is it? Is it the constraint of the system? What is it that is there that's causing that or impeding that, that change? And learn from it. And then all of a sudden, the leader becomes more respected, People start to understand you know, what the impact is of that that leader within the organization, the ability to manage and, and change it, and be more nimble.
1: The people who do your courses, actually, I, I'd love if you describe what the courses are like. And also, I've listened to a few of the podcast episodes, and it tended to it was with Kelly, and also his one hundred and one. And it tended to be it seemed to be CEOs and, and decision makers within organizations. Can you tell me what the courses are like? And also, do you get people who take them? who are trying to change, I don't know what you call what I'm doing. I mean, I'm not changing one organization. I'm trying to change culture, which doesn't exist within an organization. I have no authority to influence anyone or to take away their paycheck or whatever. It's all purely moral suasion, leadership.
0: Yeah, really, really interesting question. What we focus on mainly is the leaders or the top management within an organization in our seminars and our workshops and our events. And that's simply because they can have the greatest impact in the in the quickest. Like we just talked about. The man the leader is the one that can accomplish that transformation, right? Well, there's everybody's a leader in some way within the organization, whether it's within the, the business or maybe they're a leader at home, you know, in their own family or in their community. So it's still important, but our focus oftentimes is on the leadership because they can make that transformation much quicker. Okay. now we just went through a virtual seminar. We just finished the last uh, workshop yesterday. Our our in-person one has now been transformed into a virtual seminar. And a number of the people who were in that seminar that we did were not the top leaders in in the organization. And some of them came through scholarship and, and others just came on their own volition that they wanted to attend it and learn it. And, you know, we caution them that, you know, one of the frustrating things, it is a curse in a way to understand this, the Deming philosophy, watching the news will drive you nuts because you see how people do not think systemically mm-hmm. and yeah. it just, it's mind boggling. But within an organization, it can create a level of frustration because you see what you could be and what you could do. And oftentimes that frustration does build. Now, what we do is we let people know, and it was a question that came up very similar to yours, and I was the one that answered it, because I remember when I first started in business out of college, I just remember thinking, well, I'm not the leader. I'm the lowest person. I'm the assistant to the assistant to the assistant. There's nothing I can do, but everybody has their sphere of influence that they can impact. And so for me, the advantage that I had was, I knew a little bit about my grandfather's philosophy, not much at the time, but enough that I took some of the things and ideas. I didn't even mention Deming because I knew, like we talked about earlier, they wouldn't have even known who Deming was. It was a sales organization, but they never mapped out a process. They didn't have it written down. And we started looking at different things or I started looking at different things and bringing it to them and asking questions. Well, could we look at this? Could we look at this? Well, what that did was it expanded my sphere of influence because all of a sudden it started to have a positive impact on the organization. So I expanded my sphere, expanded my sphere, expanded my sphere of influence. And so while we encourage the leaders in their management teams to come to the workshops and seminars, we never, we never turn anybody away. And oftentimes we'll have big companies that have 10, 20, 50,000 people attend, and it will be just five or six people from a particular division. And they'll understand coming out of it that they have a system which is built. They have inputs into that system. They have a process, and then they have the outputs and what they're trying to achieve with their customers. And they realize they're just a small part of it, but their own subsystem that they operate in is still going to be constrained by the inputs coming in, whether it's performance appraisals, incentives, bonuses. But they also now have a greater understanding of the impact of that on them, on the process, on the people there. And they can also oftentimes make changes or make adjustments now that they have a wider, a broader understanding of what what are some of the issues that are causing some of the problems or issues within the organization. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, man, you're making me dream of of within five years having this country have people feel like I can make a difference. I might not be able to change everything, but I can change something here, with the expectation of not that maybe they'll comply with something, but that they'll achieve their dreams, that they'll create a world that they want to live in, they'll create a community that they want to live in. As opposed to, you know, I tell people about my famous no packaging vegetable stew, and they keep coming back and saying, "You don't know what it's like to be a single mom in a food desert with three kids." three jobs. And then when I meet, but none of them are either. They don't say I don't understand them either about themselves. Yes. And then I bring the single mom in a food desert here and she invites me up to the Bronx. And I do a you know, McDonald's isn't doing anyone any favors. They're not trying to liberate anyone up there. They're trying to trap them up there. They won't say it that way. And then I go up there and you know they're like, oh, this is a way out. If we want more vegetables, if we want healthier food and to be more readily available up there, this is the way to do it. And But it's not about the dollars and cents, although it is. It's about empowerment and community and not trapping. One of the things I read early on in, how can you tell when you're in a system? And it says, the person said, I forget who it was, if Nader Peter wasengi, I forget, said, you feel compelled to do stuff. You feel you have to do it out of compulsion. And that generally means that there's a system kind of forcing you into something.
0: Well, and I think, I mean, that's a really good point. Because, I mean, when you look at it, what is a system? It's a network of interdependent components that work together to try to achieve the aim of that system. And I think one of the challenges we have, whether it's in our communities or I know it's important to you, is in the environment is what is your aim on that system? Mm -hmm. And if the aim is clear, then we have the ability and everybody understands it. They're working towards it. I mean, one of the things I think you watched my TED Talk where I talked about when I started my business. And we were all getting frustrated and we sat around the table and I thought, well, I'm I'm Deming's grandson. Everybody, I'm sure, understands the aim of the organization. My partners and I, we'd come up with this aim that was so convoluted that I remember getting off an elevator before going in to see investment bankers or private equity. And I'm trying to recite what the aim is of the organization because I couldn't quite remember it. And I was more focused on, "Okay, can I memorize this three sentence thing because I didn't want to stumble in the middle. It was so complex that what we realized when we sat around and we asked everybody, what is the aim? And they said, Oh, we understand we know the aim. So we had them all write it down. We looked at it, there were probably, I think, 10 or 12 of us around the table. Joshua, everybody had a different understanding of what the aim is. So they were all working hard and giving their best efforts towards a different aim. I mean, the waste that took place with that was astounding. And once we simplified the aim all of a sudden things got a heck of a lot better really, really quickly. And so, you know, that aim becomes a very powerful starting point for everybody to understand, you know, what they're trying to do within that organization. So that, you know, going back to something I know that's near and dear to you, to the environment, if they understand that part of the aim of a manufacturing plant that's like finishing metal, where there's a lot of chemicals that are harmful to the environment, right? That if they understand that the part of that aim is that we do as little or no harm to the environment, then instead of taking that bucket and saying, you know, instead of me spending the time to take it to the proper disposal, I'm just going to throw it out into the field. You would never do that. Yeah, it's fine.
1: We happen to be working on a mission statement right now, and I'd love to send it to you after we finish and get your thoughts
0: on it. I'd love to see.
1: If you like the show, I recommend acting, as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe it in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodekcom donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act, and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. Now I'm going to say, I'm going to change topics a bit, or change to talk about the environment. And it sounds like something that it matters to you. Is is the environment something you think about? Is sustainability something you think about and work on?
0: It's always been important to me. You know, from when I, when I was a young. Kid and was fortunate growing up in a big city, and not really understanding what environment was until I had a chance to go on my first camping trip, and just fell in love with. Well, what's out here? What's this is nature? You know, what's going on? And I fell in love with it. And then you know, as time goes on, and I go to college in a, in a big city, and, and worked in big cities. You know, I do as much as I could, not only to get out into nature. But also, what was the impact of our actions on that nature that I loved and, and was so important to us? So that's always been something that I think about. And I know my wife and I, we moved from big city Los Angeles to Sun Valley, Idaho. I mean, and talk about being right in the middle of nature. You know, we were, we were sitting outside this morning, uh, drinking our, our tea and coffee and looking at the elk herd that was 30 yards away. Um, feeding on everything. And, you know, you just, you look at that and and what can we do? And we're near a river, the Big Wood River, and how important trout are, the wild trout and how they're disappearing. And what can we do from an environmental standpoint, such as, okay, we had, when we bought this house, we had a big, beautiful yard and we took out some of the lawn so that we would be watering less. We do not use any Uh, fertilizer. We don't use any weed control. And locally, they did an article on us, talked about us because there's a lot of people around the area that feel the same way. And then there's uh, the Trout Unlimited actually lets you know that you've achieved this level of, of impacting the environment by not doing that. We have a beautiful garden and we don't put anything in there that will impact the environment and run off into the water because Every little bit's going to make a difference, like you said in one of your TED Talks. I mean, it, 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 all those little pieces add up. You know, when you may think that as an individual, you're not going to do anything. But for us, it's not only doing that, but letting other people know that this is important to us, too.
1: Thank you for sharing that. And I'm curious about that experience you described as a child the first time you saw nature. I don't know how well you remember it or if you remember it like it was yesterday. Can you describe what you saw or what you felt or what the moment?
0: You know, it's really interesting because, I mean, it was a long time ago. I mean, I think it was sixth, seventh grade. What I remember was, you know, the excitement of being out there with my friends and we were going to go hiking and we had backpacks on and all this stuff. And we were going to be not just pulling off the side of the road and and being there with a, a million other people. We were going out into the wilderness, right? And what I remember was silence at night. Now, silence in the sense that you and I were talking about earlier, you could hear the crickets. You could hear the, and I remember the wind blowing, which was just so amazing to me to hear the whooshing of the wind going through. And I realized I just never heard that. And then the other thing I remember was the gentleman who took us, and I'll never forget his name. Kenyon Cork was his name. And he had us looking up at the sky. We're thinking, well, what does that have to do with anything? And we waited till the fire went out. And we're looking up at the sky and all of a sudden started realizing Oh my gosh, look what we can see because there was no light. I mean, no light around us at all. And we could see this thing that I had read about in the books called the Big Dipper and the Milky Way and all this stuff and I just thought that was one of the coolest things was being out there and the fact that you know we could theoretically even though they didn't let us do it, a couple of us did it anyway just to prove it. We just drank water straight from the stream. I mean they so wanted us to filter it or something in case there was some kind of contaminants, but the fact that there was clean water that we could drink out here that we could see the sky and what's really cool here where we live now is we're in a, what's called one of the few areas in North America it's called a dark preserve, and so we can go out I mean this sunday we're going to sit outside at night and watch a meteor shower that if I lived in l a or washington d c where I grew up i won't I probably would not be able to see it, but that was what struck me was that this is really cool. And I think at that point, I can't wait to experience this the rest of my life. And as I got older, I realized the impact we were having on that nature that, that I saw.
1: If you don't mind me asking in a different direction, thank you for sharing that again also. When you, you talked about the trout disappearing, about not being able to see that sky, can you share that, the feelings there or what, what the imagery there is?
0: I think the thing that hits me is how Wondrous it is. I don't know where you are if you were able to see that comet that's recently been here.
1: I've only seen pictures of it.
0: I got to see it. Hmm. We went out into a field, walked out into a field, and I thought, I'm, I brought my binoculars and I looked up and I went, Oh, I can see it with my, the naked eye. And then you put the binoculars up and you're just, it, it's just amazing. I mean, I was able to take a picture of it with my iPhone out there. And so I think the thing that hits me is the wonder of it. And I also feel bad for the people who do not have a chance to experience or see something like that and what that, what that impact is on them. And I was, I'll digress just for a second. I was just talking to a, a good friend of mine who's looking at buying a, a piece of property. I think it's in Montana or Wyoming. I can't remember which. And on that property, one of the things that he agreed to do from the current owner is that they would continue to bring out several dozen kids a year from I believe it's the LA area to experience what it's like out here in the wilderness. And I said, that's really cool. I said, did they ever follow whatever happened to these kids? And he said, the impact has been unbelievable. He said, every kid that's ever gone through it has gone on to college. And almost all of them have paid it back by coming and volunteering or you know being involved in it. And so to me, that's kind of encapsulates what it means to me is to be able to see this and all you know and feel some sadness for those that don't get a chance to experience what we get to see. I've never seen an elk live before. We we came to Idaho. Now I see them all the time. It's just it's absolutely magical.
1: So based on these experiences and these memories, these feelings. I invite you at your option, and you don't have to do it, but if you're up for it, to th- think of something to do to act on those feelings, both the wonder, also the, all of what you just described to me, uh, with a couple of constraints. One is that you described a lot of things you're already doing, but this has to be something you're not already doing. It has to be something that you do yourself. I have all these leaders on who are like, oh yeah, I'll get my team to do something. This is, you have to do it yourself, and it has to have some measurable effect. You don't have to measure it. It doesn't have to be big. It doesn't have to be small. It doesn't have to be long term. It can be short term, but it just has to be. I just a lot of people say, "Oh, I'll read a book," or "I'll I'll I'll learn," or "I'll increase my awareness." Great, just don't stop there. Go to behavior. So if you're up for it, to do something to act on those, and and I'm not saying you have to do the biggest thing. I'm not saying you have to do something that National Geographic told you to do. It's to act on your feelings. Love to. And most people, when I ask, they they come back and like, "Well, what should I do?" But I I don't want. I'm not going to come up with it. I, I will walk you through to help. I've, I've walked, everyone has been able to come up with something.
0: I can imagine. Again? Yeah, I'd love to do that.
1: Does anything come to mind off the bat? Because it's really acting on your experiences and what matters to you.
0: What kind of jumps out at me right off the bat is, okay, we've done some things around the outside of our house to reduce our impact and uh, imprint on the environment. Is there something we can do inside? I mean, that could be something right off the bat that we could look at doing. And, you know, I'd have to think about, I mean, one of the things that I've already said to my wife is that the one thing that I can say for me that's been a positive coming out of this whole COVID experience and and where we live has been badly, badly hit, unfortunately, is, and I think this will be near and dear to you, is I haven't had to get on an airplane. I gotta tell you how liberating that is, that I knowing knowing my meetings are you know, a lot of them are gonna be virtually. And I do look forward to at some point. I I don't think I can go as far as you, at least at this stage. But I do I do look forward to you know the fact that I'm not getting on that plane. I'm not going through that, you know, the stress and and of course the corresponding pollution. But like you said, it's got to be more than just one person ultimately, because that plane's still going to fly. It's just, I'm not going to be on it. you know. And at some point you've got to get to where there's fewer planes, for example. But yeah, I mean, I'd have to think about it, you know, for me personally and, and what we could do within our own, our own system that we have here. What, what could we do to impact that? And then maybe looking at it from a larger organizational standpoint. So let's
1: start with, the first thing you said was, This stuff outside the home, I I take it that meant the changing the lawn to something that wasn't requiring watering, not using the the chemicals, because I want to get to a smart goal, specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time bound. Is there anything inside that you can say specifically? And it may lead ultimately to systemic change or maybe have something that you want to do a whole lot of things. It could be that if that's what you have in mind, but it could be just the start of something or it could be, it might not be the start of something. It's possible you'll do it and say, this is dumb.
0: I mean, I think the thing that jumps out right away is that you could do that is measurable is I mean, in my office that that I'm in right here, right now, every light, as soon as we purchased this house seven years ago, I changed every light in here to LED. Mm -hmm. Cost me a fortune back then. You know, just just to reduce that because I knew my the lights would be on quite a bit. You know, and I look around our house just inside and I see how many 75 watt bulbs, because I've had to change some of them. That, that we have. And I mean, it's, it's astronomical. I mean, something right away that we could do that would be to change that from, from that to LEDs. I mean, right there, that's measurable. That's something that is a reduction in terms of, of energy. And I'm not sure if that's the type of thing you're looking at, but if you're looking, if, if I'm talking about just directly inside the house is making that financial upfront commitment to do something along those lines.
1: It certainly is smart. It sounds like you have some number of bulbs and some fraction you've changed already and some fraction you haven't gotten to change yet. So it's something that you would do with your own hands. It's something that would have a measurable difference. So it certainly meets my criteria.
0: Well, it wouldn't actually, it's interesting because I checked into it a while ago and just didn't make the commitment. I could do it with my hands, but it's it's a lot more than that. It's beyond my ability from an electrician standpoint because we have to change all the dimmer switches. So we have to have somebody come in and do it. But I mean, it's not just going out and buying the bulbs and changing them. So it is something like that. I mean, it would take a bigger commitment from that standpoint. But maybe you've got something else in mind. Help me.
1: The thing is, what I find, if I give you an idea, (laughs) it will pale in comparison to what you could... See, the first thing is rarely meaningful. Well, it's often meaningful. I forgot to ask this. Is it something that you care about? Is it something that connects with the stuff that you were talking about? Because I believe that then when I would schedule a second conversation with you to hear how it went, and I believe that you will tell me something that you will come up with in doing it, something will happen, like you'll say, oh, I'm doing this, I could have done that. Yeah. And there's something that happens in acting on what one cares about that leads, one, that leads you to do more. So I think that I could come up with ideas, but it's, um, it's a shot in the dark as to whether it connects with something that you care about. Yeah. I don't live in Idaho. I don't see many elk around here. <laughs> and I haven't lived your life. So I might say something that for me is very meaningful. And for you, it's like, it may feel like uh, trivial or, or even denigrating something that you do care about. Yeah. So I bet that next time we speak, you will tell me things. I, th- I think there's a pretty good chance that you will have done more than what you talked about. And if you don't, you'll, have, you'll think about other things anyway. Yeah. I would just say, because you mentioned the distinction between what you do with your hands and what others do, if you do some of it, then I think that will amplify the effect for you. So you might have contractors who do this stuff, but if you also, you know, well, even if all, if they just change all the all the power stuff and then you just, you actually physically change the bulbs.
0: Yeah, I see what you're saying.
1: So if you get your hands into it in, in some way, I think it'll be a much bigger effect than if you just completely just ask for a turnkey solution.
0: Yeah, good point. Yeah, I could tell
1: you about I mean, I, I heard your description of the comet. Now, I saw Halley's Comet like 20 years ago. Yeah. And so I could connect with that. And it brought back the feelings of, oh, that's what they were talking about when they said it was like this, the ancients were like, what is, what is this? Like, what is that? Like, I've seen a, lot, I'd seen a lot of things in the sky and I'd never seen something so big outside the sun and moon. And so I could get some of that feeling. But had I not seen that, your description was like, oh, that's cool. But I wouldn't, it wouldn't get me that wonder. Likewise, if you pay for someone to do something for you yeah. and you don't get your hands into it, I, I don't think you'll get the re- emotional reward.
0: Good point. I like that.
1: So I want to, if, if you're game, then I, I propose scheduling a second conversation where we describe how it went, or I, I'm going to ask how it went. How long do you think it'll take to for that to happen? And you don't have to rush for me. It, it can be on your schedule.
0: When you say... To happen, you mean to not just think about it, but to go ahead and execute?
1: Yeah. So you can. So if I ask you how did it go, you can give me an experience of how it went.
0: Well, I would say now you've prompted me to think about something, maybe some things a little bit differently, and I, I'd have to see how that plays out. But I don't know. Maybe three weeks, a month.
1: So if we talk in a month, and the the dimmer switches will be in, and because <laughs> I want to get to where. A measurable, I mean, where you yeah. have an, there's something that you observe, not just that you got the wheels in motion.
0: Yeah. Yeah, a month, I think a month would be fair. Now, okay, cool. I got to give you a warning. I mean, I'm not good with electricity. So if it starts getting dicey, <laughs> I don't want you reading about Kevin got juiced.
1: <laughs> Podcast host in, in New York City blamed for Idaho. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I'm pretty good about doing. Avoiding foolish things that are beyond my capability on that front.
1: Okay. So after we finish recording, after we stop the recording, then uh, if it's cool with you, we'll get out the calendars and and schedule the next conversation. That'd be great. All right. And I I want to continue there more, partly because I also want to talk to you not just about how that experience was. That's what I ask all my guests who do this. But I also want to ask how it fits in with your courses. Because you see that there's a leadership thing going on. There's something going on here that I believe there's an exercise that I'm doing here. That I believe is a leadership exercise. It's not about the magnitude of what I'm doing, it's about learning experientially. And I'd love to hear how that fits in or doesn't fit in, or what other things you and your teams do that could augment it, or change it, or learn from it, or whatever. So I hope that while you do it, you also have a meta reflection.
0: Well, I think, like I was mentioning earlier, the bigger thing for us is that a lot of these people come in to these courses with the belief that. All this is going to do is improve my business, improve my top line, improve my bottom line. And that's what draws them in. Because, And I remember talking to uh, Don Peterson, who was a former chairman and CEO of Ford Motor Company. And he and I had an ch- opportunity when he spoke at one of our conferences of uh, spending some delightful time with him. And I said, Don, what is it that struck you when you watched If Japan Can, Why Can't Wait? And his answer was very different than I expected, because I thought maybe he'd under, he'd listened to some of what my grandfather said earlier in the program. And he said what struck him and what struck a lot of the other uh, business leaders that he spoke to was the fact that what happened at the end was how much money they had saved. And that was why he picked up the phone and called my grandfather. But it was what came afterwards, that it wasn't about the money they saved or the money they made but the impact they had on the individuals and within the organization and the change that they made within there, that was really the transformational element of it. And I remember him saying, I just didn't buy into this concept of transforming the individual. All I wanted him was to show me how do I increase my quality and, and, and productivity and lower my cost. So how do I do that? That's all, that's all that mattered and that they didn't see the bigger picture. And for us, and I, I hope I'm answering your question in a manner that's that, that you want. But for us, it's it's more than just well, how do we help our top line or bottom line? Is what is it that we do in ter- terms of transforming that organization that people come away? saying, this is something that is important to me, not as an in- not only as an in- individual within the company, but also as an individual within my family or my community. And I now ha- see a bigger picture in terms of how I can have a broader impact across all of those.
1: Yeah, the, the challenge is get, is it a perpetual challenge for you to get people to expect that change or to know that that change is possible before doing it?
0: Not on the latter part of what I said because, I mean, I've spoken to a number of of executives who said they're not coming to our seminar to create, quote, joy in work or intrinsic motivation. They're there to save, like I said, save money, make money. And oftentimes that's the draw that brings them. Other things that oftentimes bring the, them into it is if they're in a crisis and what they're doing right now isn't working, so they're like the Japanese after World War II, they're willing to try something very different. And it's 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 not until they get into it, like we talked about earlier, that first day, there's that challenge because you're challenging the way they got there. That leader oftentimes, oh, I mean, almost always, got to the point of being a leader by doing things the way they do things. And the last thing that they want to hear is, well, wait a second, we're asking you to change the way you did something or the way you're doing it, and the way you got to be successful. I mean, talk about fear and talk about, I mean, that's something that's really challenging to leadership and management. Now, there are enlightened people out there that are willing to try something very different all the time, but until they actually read the book, go through this, they don't have that eye-opening experience.
1: you got to bring them in with one thing, even though you know that the value that they're going to get is going to be much greater.
0: Yeah. And it's not just, I mean, you look at that title of that book, The New Economics for Industry, Government, and Education. It doesn't say anything about the transformation of the individual. But my grandfather says that right right off the bat. I think, you know, in his preface, he talks about it. He says the purpose of, of school of business or anything should not be to perpetuate the present style of management, but to transform it. Because what we're teaching right now is, you know, how, how do we perpetuate our current? I mean, all of our MBA programs, I everything, mean, they're perpetuating for the most part the current style of management. The idea would be how do we focus on transforming that style of management to what we need to prepare for the future? Right now, we have a pretty uncertain future with, with what is COVID going to mean for the next couple of years or maybe the next couple of decades. We're going to have to transform things and we're going to have to prepare leadership and the students of today for the future and not for the past. Because I think what my grandfather would say is that that present style of managing is preparing them for what happened in the past, not for what's going to happen in the future.
1: Well, I'm going to propose that we be, pick up here next time. Perfect. Also with your experience of, of how things go with rewiring your, your house and, and <laughs> changing those things. Uh, and also how that dovetails with what you guys do. Is there anything I didn't think to ask that I should have or to bring up or anything you want to say directly to the listeners?
0: This has been a delight. I've enjoyed speaking with you and the fact that, that you've had a chance to explore some of this also, because I, th- I think it's it's more important now than ever. And, and I think a lot of people see this as a, as a ray of hope on you know, how we can move forward as a country or as a community or as a business.
1: Well, Kevin Cahill, thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Appreciate the opportunities.
1: I hope what Kevin shared at the end resonated with you as much as it did with me, that these changes improve our lives, our families, our communities, that the increased profits for the people Kevin works with and Earth's ability to sustain life and human society with people that I work with, it's not exactly secondary because those things are really big, but they're external. The internal reward that I try to work with is transforming yourself, which results in transforming your community, which could be your whole nation, your world, and your relationships, to live by your values. This is not impossible. It isn't even hard once you get past the first steps. Yes, those first steps can be challenging. They're emotionally distraught. You have to go through shame and guilt or sometimes insecurity, things like that. But I, for one, am glad that I did. I think you will be too. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodekcom donate. Again, that's joshuaspodekcom donate.